Uh, In today's gospel, Luke 15, uh, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees in Israel, are scandalized by Jesus' association with sinners. Verse 1, which you just heard, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus then seeks to teach them, to rebuke them, uh, and to teach us what St. Paul would later write to his son in the faith, Timothy. Uh, This is one of the comfortable words in the Book of Common Prayer that we hear after the absolution from sin. 1 Timothy 1.15 This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came into the world, to rescue us, to save us. Jesus welcomes sinners And notice the tense, welcomes, not just welcomed 2,000 years ago, but welcomes now sinners because that is who he came to save. Besides, practically speaking, if Jesus refused to eat with sinners, he'd be eating alone. (laughs) For he alone is without sin. Jesus' response to the grumblings of the scribes and of the Pharisees comes in the form of a threefold rebuke, a triplet of parables the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or as it's commonly called, the parable of the prodigal son. And the nuance in this passage, the different emphases in each parable, really come to life when you read the scriptures with the ancient church and understand how the church has understood and interpreted these parables. Uh, St. Ambrose of Milan, for example, a 4th century bishop, identifies the different emphases with regard to the salvific agents in each of the three parables. Who is it that's active and working towards the redemption, the finding of the lost. In the parable of the lost sheep, the man symbolizes Christ. In the parable of the lost coin, the woman symbolizes the church. And in the parable of the lost son, the father, of course, represents God the Father. Ambrose summarizes it this way. Luke 15, he summarizes it this way. Christ carries the sinner, the church seeks and intercedes, and the Father receives. So let's consider briefly the two parables found in today's gospel. In the parable of the lost sheep, uh, the 100 sheep, in the view of The fathers, the church fathers, refers to the heavenly host, but also 100 being a number of fullness to the whole of rational creation. So the lost sheep represents mankind. So this parable is at one interpretive level 
pointing to the glorious mystery of the incarnation, that Christ left the 99. That is, Christ left the trappings of the glory of heaven and made himself as a servant. That as the Nicene Creed says, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And this is one of the overarching themes that we find in all three parables. That the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is for us. He's for you. He loves you. He is not, as 2 Peter says, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I really struggle with this as a small child, as a, teen, as a teenager, as a young man. There's times I still struggle with this. I was, just had this um, erroneous, spiritually devastating idea that God was out to get me. That God was just waiting for me to mess up so that like in Korah's rebellion against Moses, the earth could open up and I would fall in and I, I would go down into Hades alive. God was mad and he was especially mad at me. I remember one time in college, it was a turning point for me. I had a really, uh, I had a really bad panic attack. Uh, I would have these from time to time, uh, especially in uh, my early 20s. And I think they were induced in part by this existential dread of God. Not, not the fear of God that we're called to have. Not, not the fear that Isaiah has that in the presence of God, I'm undone. What else can I say? That's good. But again, this sort of God out to get me. And a friend of mine was with me. He wasn't even that close of a friend. But he said something to me in the midst where going from uh, Roanoke to Lynchburg. I was in college in Lynchburg. And you'd have to go to Roanoke. Liberty was really strict when I was there compared to now. And so you had to go to Roanoke to have fun. So if you wanted to go watch We Were Soldiers, which was rated R, and you'd get 17 reps, almost kicked out of school, you'd have to go to Roanoke you know, to do the stuff that the Liberty Way said you couldn't do. And so we're coming back, have this panic attack, pulled over some, like, you know, uh, by-the-hour hotel, motel on the side of the road on 460. And we're sitting there, and my friend says to me, Matt, if God's goal is retribution, that's what he's out for, then why the cross? If God's goal is retribution, then why the cross? Because you, you cannot integrate the cross of Jesus Christ into that sort of bad theology, can you? It doesn't fit. No, the truth is, is that it's the father of lies. It's the thief it's Satan that has come to kill and to steal and destroy. What does our Lord say? I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. 
John 3, 16 and 17. Verses, I mean, everyone knows John 3, 16. These are verses I knew from a very young age, like three years old. But it took me years to grasp their meaning. For God so loved the world. That's the person of the Father. That's picking out the person of the Father. For our seminary students, the hypostasis of the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But we have to keep going. Well, yeah, God, God gives us a way out, but he'd really like to destroy us. No. Verse 17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And when he finds one of us, when he puts the lost sheep on his shoulder, he doesn't begrudgingly say, well, yeah, I guess you're in. He rejoices with an unspeakable joy. That human joy can only be, it's analogous. It's not a one-to-one -one correspondence to divine joy. He finds us and he rejoices, and so do all the host of heaven. Now in the parable of the lost coin... A woman loses one of her ten silver coins. And it's not arbitrary. I know there's several things I say constantly. It's not arbitrary in Scripture that the one looking for the lost in the second parable is a woman. It wasn't like, well, Jesus, we cast a man in the first parable, so we need to cast a woman in the second parable to cut the cake evenly. That's not what's going on. It's not arbitrary. Nothing in Scripture is arbitrary. There are no throwaway words. There are no throwaway details. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed. If it's there, it's there for a purpose. In Greek, the word for this silver coin is drachma. And in Jesus' day, it was not uncommon for married women to adorn a necklace of ten drachmas. So the woman in this parable is a wife, a bride. And who is the bride in Holy Scripture? The people of God. The church. The church is to seek out the lost wayward brothers and sisters, and those that do not know Jesus Christ. So the church is not ancillary to God's plan of redemption. It's integrally related. The church is vital for your salvation and for the salvation of the world. In, con in uh, contrast, to the modern proponents of a religionless, deinstitutionalized Christianity. The church is not 
uh, in the way. Which I've never understood that. People are like, I love Jesus, but I'm, I just don't like organized religion. I don't even know what that means. I'm not even trying to be funny. So you prefer disorganized religion. What it really means, if I can get, I'll get snarky for a second. What it really means is that you prefer um, your own half-baked musings over a single-origin cup of espresso to the faith delivered once for all to the saints. The church is God's idea. The church is the mystical body of Christ. The church is the means by which the kingdom of God comes on earth as in heaven. And I'll take it a step further. The church, from one perspective, the church is the kingdom of God because it is the body of Christ who is the head of the body and the king of the kingdom. And Christ himself, as Origen of Alexandria said, is himself the kingdom. So there's a close, if not strict, identification between Christ and the church. They're distinct, but not, they're not separate. Jesus refers to himself, does he not? His body as the temple of God. And what is the church called in Scripture? The temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the church is involved in God's, to, to put it as mildly as I can, God's program of redemption. This is what we're in on. That the church not only announces the gospel of Christ, that Jesus is Lord, that he's the conquering king that rescues us from sin, death, and Satan. But the gospel, the lordship of Jesus is implemented in the church. Drachmas, like most ancient coins, would have on them the image of the ruler, the image of Caesar under the Roman Empire, humanity symbolized by the lost coin in the second parable, bears the image of the ruler, bears the image of God, albeit the image of God can be marred by sin. And as the church, we are called to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own power, to search and intercede for lost coins that Christ the Good Shepherd may carry them on his shoulders, that the Father may receive and embrace his prodigal sons and daughters with great joy, that the image of God in which they were made may be restored, may be realized. Christ carries the sinner, the church seeks and intercedes and the Father receives. And it is the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, that enables us to come home running. God takes the first step in your redemption. In fact, he takes the first <laughs> several 
steps. And, and this is vital for us to understand, not just for our view of salvation, but for our view of God, to understand again that, that God is for humanity. This being evidenced that while we were yet sinners, not while we were trying to follow God, not while we were trying to live in light of what he teaches us to do, not when we were trying to imitate Christ, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He rescued us. In our epistle today, Paul speaks of the mercy and grace that he received from God, professing that God is the source of his strength. However, this same Paul says elsewhere that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So God is the initiator. God does the work. It's in his power and his strength that we follow Christ, that we become like Christ. But that doesn't mean that our salvation in the holistic sense is wholly passive. That we are to sit by idly. This is what I got in the, the neo-reformed Calvinist camps. It's like you're just sitting around waiting for God to zap you. You don't have to do, do anything, and actually you shouldn't try to do anything because doing things is bad. Okay? But if that were the case, that the Christian life is passive, that there's, that there's not any sort of spirit-filled duty, obedience, obligation, that there's no work to be done, then I would contend that most of Scripture doesn't make any sense. I mean, why is Scripture full of guidance and exhortations? Because we're made in God's image, and one of the gifts that he gives us is that he's given us free will. So that, so that it's possible for us to actually make a meaningful response to grace. God gives us grace, yes. And what is grace? He gives us his favor. He gives us his life. But we are to receive and cooperate with that grace. He gives us gifts. It's a gift. But we must open and use those gifts. Because, again, one of the gifts he's given us is free will. God is the source of life and strength. He gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. He's given us the sacraments. He's given us the scriptures. He's given us prayer. He's given us fellowship, relationships. He's given us wisdom. He's given us the truth. He's given us the church. But it's something that we must give ourselves to engage in. You know, there's a bottomless. Another way to think about it is there's a bottomless and inexhaustible rev reservoir of living water that is yours in Christ. But we've, we've got to turn the faucet and, and drink from it. We must submit to the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who enables us to live the life we are called to. So brothers and sisters, let us not resist or grieve or quench the Holy Spirit, but continually ask that God, who is utterly for us, 
and has shown that he is utterly for us, supremely in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's ask that God will, as the colic says, mercifully grant that his Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts. Amen.